uh, in general, be ready to to not listen to a lot of people uh, because you're going to hear a lot of no's and don't do that. Uh, but what the world needs is innovation. Uh, you know, as a society, we, we aren't going to get very far unless there's people willing to to not listen to people. Um, if you listen to people, you aren't going to end up, you know, we just wouldn't have any innovation. Uh, if people only did the easy things, we wouldn't have any innovation. Um, so, yeah, I'd, I'd encourage people to to go for it. You know, um, you can try and fail quickly. You know, that'll help. Um, but just just do it. Hey everyone, this is Devin Miller here with another episode of The Inventive Journey. I'm your host, Devin Miller, the serial entrepreneur that's grown several startups in the seven and eight figure businesses, as well as a founder and CEO of Miller IP Law, where he helps startups and small businesses with their patents and trademarks. If you ever need help with yours, just go to strategymeeting.com, grab some time with us to chat, and we're always here to help. Now, today we've got another great guest on the podcast, Sean Hootentoft. And that's as close as I'm going to get to pronouncing it right. Uh, but uh, Sean, as a quick introduction, uh, grew up in Scotland and uh, during high school learned computer science. At the same time, uh, the par his parents were losing their house, um, but ended up uh, during that period uh, or, or afterwards worked in a computer vision um, company for surgeries, I believe, um, and then got into computer or com computer consumer finance and mortgage bonds. Um, and then uh, during 2008 and 2009, I uh, saw people were making uh, mistakes with their credits and how they were to, dealing with finances and whatnot. Uh, so went and got a PhD for I think it was household finance or something along those lines, became a professor, um, and then went to work for the the Fed, uh, federal government for a period of time. Um, after that, uh, joined a, a better more um, better mortgage uh, working on their data. Um, then had an idea for how to automate uh, borrowing and uh, and uh, doing it or began his own startup journey a couple years ago. So with that, mo hopefully mostly is uh, correct and accurate. Welcome on the podcast, Sean. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely excited to have you here. So I just gave a, a quick walkthrough on uh, what's a, a much longer journey, but uh, maybe rewinding a, a bit in time and unpacking it a bit. Um, tell us how your journey got uh, started uh, growing up in Scotland and uh, learning a, a bit about computer science. Yeah, well, I guess when I was uh, coming out of school and going to university or making the choice about university, it was the early 90s. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, the first users of, uh, of email, you know, were still only at universities back then, uh, the World Wide web, uh, was just starting to get popular. Um, the Netscape browser still existed. Um, yeah. And, uh, computer science in general was something new. Uh, so that sounded more attractive than studying medicine or law. Uh, you know, the usual parent recommended uh, paths. And uh, and then, yeah, you know, doing computer vision, you know, one subset of AI was particularly interesting, automating things for users and taking it off their hands and uh computer integrated surgery is this this great area for uh for applying that so now one question so you, you know you started out doing computer science in in high school learning that 
Um, now, at that during that period, you know, computer vision for surgery seems like it's probably a fairly technical area where you're probably not going to want to make a mistake as far as when surgeries go. Now, did you go to college, undergraduate, university, whatever you want to call it, to study that? Or did you just go right out of high school and have the experience and go in the working world? Or kind of, what was that leap? Yeah. Um, yeah, back then, uh, computer vision was... Uh, yeah, it was largely theoretical. There weren't uh, too many applied areas. Uh, you know, maybe the military was applying it for guiding missiles. Um, there definitely weren't, you know, self-driving cars. That those They were all research projects. Mm. There was that. Um, so, yeah, it was most far more in the research domain than in the applied uh, domain uh, back then, although, you know, probably a healthy amount of interchange between industry and academia so i i was in academia I, you know i did an undergrad in comp sci and my uh final year project was in recovering uh three three-dimensional models from two-dimensional images and then i uh went to grad school as well and then yeah and then ended up uh you know uh actually have a published paper in some form of computer assisted surgery uh, and then and then left that to to start working on Wall Street. So now and that was gonna be gonna be where I was gonna ask. And so you were in and how long were you in the kind of computer vision surgeries um arena for? How long did you work in or work in that field? Yeah, well, I mean, it was the end of my undergrad, and then I spent a year or two in research institutes, one year in Germany, a year at the University of Cambridge, and then I came across to the US to mm. Johns Hopkins, where I started the PhD. And then, uh, you know, strictly speaking, I was a dropout and uh, dropped out with a master's after a year and a half of classes here. Uh, but, you know, doing some research along the way, like I said, uh, a paper or two, and then really applying a lot of the same pattern recognition uh, or ML techniques, but to things like interest rates and and interest rate curves. Yeah. Now how did, and that you started to touch on that, how did you get into doing the, Doing mortgage, in other words, yeah, I get that, you know, there data is always data and you can apply that in, in a lot of different fashions. But on the yeah. other hand, you know, computer vision surgeries and, and going down that route to mortgages and finance seems like it's a pretty good jump. So kind of what was the prompting or motivation or kind of what caused you to to make that leap or that switch? Um, well, it seemed like a challenging area, like a, a an area where, uh, you know, you are challenged to to build a better performing system than other people are building, you know. So instead of instead of having a a, a Robo Cup or whatever they, they called that tournament with robots playing soccer against each other, and you're competing based on your uh, soccer kicking or your computer vision algorithms, you're doing it, you know, based on money against other uh, Wall Street participants. Uh, so that bit seemed fun. It was just a, yeah, a, a, a different domain applied to a different set of challenges. Uh, and then, like you're mentioning, it is a completely different domain. And so then I started getting interesting and interested in the actual finance behind it. Uh, and you know, started, you know, there's like a series seven and sixty three uh, exam that you do uh, when you're working at one of these investment banks. And then there was the CFA program. Yeah. And ultimately getting interested on the finance side of things is what led me down the path of getting an MBA. 
And then, yeah, you know, working with uh, distressed mortgages, distressed borrowers, and uh, and noticing that, uh, you know, as we all know that that uh, that humans don't act like the the simple, clean models mm. that we have of them as perfectly rational optimizers. No, it's a little bit harder to, to accurately model human behavior. It's not always a straight line. So, so you got into finance and I said, you were starting to touch on that 2008, 2009, you know, you have the housing market largely or has crashed by that point and, and people are struggling, making mistakes, having issues. And so it, I think if you, when we talked a little bit before you went back and got the PhD and kind of with regards to household finance and even uh, was a professor for a bit of time. So, you know, what made you decide to, to go back to get the PhD route as opposed to continuing to work in the industry or help yeah. people or, you know, assist them with their mistakes yeah. or kind of what uh, led you down that path? Yeah. Um, the, the main thing was an interest in, in policy and, and helping uh, make better policy and the policy makers I saw on TV, like uh, Timothy Geithner and Hank Paulson back then uh, had this outdated view of, of human borrowers. And they were worried about things like moral hazard and, Oh, if we pursue this modification program, uh, people, you know, will ruthlessly optimize and take advantage and, you know, and default on purpose and stop paying. But what I was seeing in my investments uh, was, you know, that that sort of characterization would only apply to a small minority. Uh, and the typical person had gotten into debts that they didn't understand and that finance and borrowing is complicated. And they didn't necessarily yeah, understand what they had been getting themselves into. And, and what's worse, you know, quite often when faced with, uh, you know, a crisis event at their household level, uh, weren't, uh, yeah, you know, weren't dealing with it in the best way possible. You know, maybe they were overly optimistic about their chances of getting a job in the next six months. And if anything, I saw borrowers overpaying their creditors, you know, and, and struggling too hard to repay debts and make good on their promises. Unlike, you know, the highly sophisticated higher income borrowers who might, you know, have a better understanding of the contracts that they got into and what they are and aren't personally liable for. Um, so yeah, uh, an interest in, in, uh, helping uh, make the world a better place. Uh, I might be th the only person who left my hedge fund to do a PhD. Uh <laughs> so now so you leave the uh, head funds, you go to a head fund, uh, you go do the or hedge fund, if I can pronounce it right, go do the PhD, you come out of there. And I think you did professorship for a little bit of time and then worked for the Fed. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So I was full time at the New York Fed, uh, basically as a researcher in household credit and financial intermediation, wrapping up uh, some papers for my PhD, uh, and then a, a mortgage professor on the side at NYU Stern. So yeah, I got to uh, teach a couple classes, which was a bunch of fun. And yeah, and then the the to explain the next step, uh, you know, it it wasn't too long that I realized, you know, a making a, a change in in policy might take longer than uh what I had time for uh and uh and so yeah I I I got interested in making quicker impacts 
on the world than writing uh, research papers. And also, you know, I, I wasn't the world's best uh, academic either. You know, that's uh, quite often academic research is a different taste, you know, like it's a different thing than than whether you can help people in the real world or not. So that interest, what it motivated me precisely to pursue research wasn't uh, necessarily, you know, it didn't line up perfectly with uh, getting papers published and uh, doing well in that game. So now, so, and that makes sense. And, you know, also on the kind of working for the Fed, it's, uh, you know, can be impactful, but it's also can be, a, a you know, take a long time to affect change. And there's a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of hoops to jump through. And so yeah. you're saying, okay, you, you know, you did the professorship for a period of time as well as working with the Fed. And then, you know, it sounds, you know, it sounds like at some point you said, okay, um, you know, kind of, or did that for a period of time. And then you went out back into the kind of the, the corporate world, so to speak. And I think you worked for Better Mortgage for a period of time. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so I joined Better as a chief data scientist sort of character. I was called chief economist, but but I wasn't, you know, just a guy that you're putting on uh, TV spots or, uh, you know, interviews on CNBC. I was using data to dig into how our loan factory worked and how we could get it to work better uh, and sort of, yeah, like roaming around there. Um, turned out that uh, an area where I could help out a lot in the short term was uh, helping our D2C growth through advertising and pricing of loans. So I started, uh, you know, ran our first pricing experiments, uh, started using data to manage our ad spend more intelligently. Um, yeah, and so I'd, I'd have a huge bunch of advice anytime there's uh, listeners out there who are, you know, in academia thinking of uh, going into the real world or are a chief data scientist or data scientists looking to 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 get more into the working end of business um, about, yeah, useful ways to transition. So it was basically uh, looking around for problems to help solve and help the business run better by by using data. That makes perfect sense. So, so you go and work with Better Mortgage. You kind of or have an ability to utilize, you know, a lot of your skills as well as to help other people. And kind of sounds like it's a a good position. Now, if I recall, you know, a couple of years ago came along and you kind of had an idea maybe on how to automate things or kind of improve things. So, what kind of prompted that, and kind of what uh, motivated to, to jump over and do your own startup, or kind of how did that go? Yeah. Uh, so. When I was managing the advertising spend at Better, I guess I I, I got a deep appreciation of um, the the lack of independent, objective borrowing advice for U.S. households. So you know, back to computer-assisted surgery, someone's got a difficult problem to solve. What do we do? We work on fancy systems to take that problem off their hands. Um, and you have lots of researchers running at the problem. In borrowing, we don't really have that. We we have that in wealth. Uh, you know, there are people who will manage your money for you as a fiduciary. But in borrowing, what we have are a lot of great advertising machines like a Nerd Wallet or a Credit Karma or Lending Tree, Bankrate, every, all these things you will have heard of mm. that, you know, are the top results whenever you search uh, for any borrowing question, like, uh, you know, should I refinance my mortgage? Um, the, the problem is because 
they're paid for by people in my old position. They're paid for by the lenders. They sort of only have an indirect interest in good borrowing outcomes. It's not necessarily the first and only interest they have. So they're sort of fighting with uh, one arm tied behind their back in a way. You know, they aren't automating the lowest possible cost because if they tell you, oh, just go with better, they're going to piss off Quicken. And Quicken costs over $5,000 more per mortgage. They have a lot more money to offer per lead. So, you know, they're in this delicate dance. Uh, so I had this crazy idea of uh, actually, yeah, building a computer-assisted borrower uh, or, you know, a robo-advisor for debt uh, that automates the the best possible advice. Um, and yeah, and th that was the gap I saw. It was also a problem I faced at Better. So, you know, we'd buy leads from these great, uh, you know, uh, well-established presences, businesses. Mm. But because of the game that they're playing and the dance that that they're dancing, they're in the volume game. They, they get paid by the... Well, the, the quantity of leads they sell, they aren't interested in whether they convert or not. Or if they are, they're only interested in it like months from now when you come back and complain, going like, hey guys, all those leads I bought from you in March didn't you know, turn into funded loans. And mm -hmm. then you, know, you slowly negotiate the prices and it's this sort of arms race and or you know, race to the bottom too as well in terms of quality. So... Yeah, you know, what I would have loved as a low-cost dependable lender at better, I would have loved to have an option uh, or, or, you know, someone that would, would uh, yeah, send me the the best leads or pre-qualify them, make sure that they're, they're going after a home that they can afford, look at their debts holistically. Um, and yeah, so that's what, that's what led me, led me to start Solve. Uh, and that's the journey we're on. And we've probably been going about, uh, a year and a half or so and live with users for about a year. Awesome. So now it sounds like it, uh, you've been, uh, going, uh, going strong and, uh, and having a good time. So give us an idea, you know, so you've been at it for about a year or things taken off and just like a rocket ship to the top, or is it one where you've had to pivot and adjust and, you know, or is it crashing you're teetering on bankruptcy or anywhere in between, but give us an idea kind of how it's gone over the past year and, and uh, how it's been received. Yeah, it's definitely somewhere in between. Um, it's 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 uh, it's definitely somewhere in between. Um, you know, we aren't uh, a rocket ship already broken free of orbit. We're we're uh, at the point we're pretty close to the stratosphere. We're just about to break through. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think that's to be expected, given that you know we didn't have uh customers immediately lined up for what we were building. Uh, we did have people asking us to, to build this, you know, people like better uh, saying, no, you should just, you know, build this for us. Um, but yeah, we, we're in the, you know, in the middle of, of finding our dependable, uh, you know, source of gold in the mine, you know, we have scattered bits of gold uh, and we're, we're still, you know, looking for the really big, big ore. But uh, yeah, lots of promising success. We've, we have pilots that are getting upgraded, uh, launching more every month. Uh, in 2022, you know, our initial focus was on actually helping people and then this then figure out how to get paid for it. Uh, in 2022, we identified over $9 million in savings for users, you know, so we're sort of past the 
you know, the prove that we can help people phase and and we're in the okay, and let's figure out how to get paid for it in a way that doesn't, you know, force us to fight with one arm held behind our back. Um, we're all B2B. Uh, so this is all getting sponsored by other businesses. So you can think of a financial planner, uh, you know, startup or an employer that has employees, uh, you know, finance and debt is the number one source of stress for most people. Or you can think of a home buying platform mm. where having some, you know, really nifty, quick, automated estimates of uh, how to maximize their home buying power, plus the clear actionable recommendations is valuable. So yeah, so there's sort of like a broad uh, range of inbound interests. And it's just, uh, yeah, sort of narrowing down to, to one dependable source. Um, so we're five people, we're remote. Uh, you know, I live in New York, so we couldn't really afford to be in uh, New York as a, as a technology company with the amount of money I raised. Mm. Uh, we have a great team of of early you know advisors and investors that believe in the mission uh as well as the the people involved um so yeah and, and the the next fundraising round for us will be like a grown-up seed round where we go out and raise a few million and it's priced and we get a board and all the grown-up uh bells and whistles uh, of a of a much larger venture and yeah um we have lots of interesting technological challenges that we've had to solve. Uh, you know, we're using uh, machine learning to, you know, with the data that we have. And so, you know, the more users we have coming through, the better outcomes we get for other users. Uh, the more users we have come through, you know, with our marketplace of looking at prices across debts, you know, the better prices we can get with lenders that we're set up directly with, and the more lenders uh, will be interested in that marketplace. So the nice thing about the business is uh, when we break free of uh, Earth's gravity, uh, things will just keep on getting better. Um, we're one of the first to focus, or you know, we are the first to focus on optimizing the best possible debt outcomes, like how to borrow. Um, there's lots of uh, potential partners for us who help with credit scores, but that's, yeah, um, the, the thing that hadn't been done before was like, hey, there's all these different ways to borrow. How do you maximize for this outcome given those ways to borrow and given, you know, where your credit score is today, uh, yada, yada. Yeah, sounds like uh, a, a lot of uh, great work going on, a lot of exciting things and uh, always fun to kind of be on the cusp of breaking through. And it uh, sounds like that will happen uh, hopefully soon and it'll even be more exciting uh, from there. So that's awesome. So well, now as we've kind of uh, caught up to the, the present day of the journey and even hearing a little bit about uh, where it's uh, hopefully headed, um, great time to transition to the two questions I always ask at the end of each episode. So we'll jump to those now. Um, so the first question I always ask is, along your journey, what was the worst business decision you ever made? And what'd you learn from it? Yeah, I uh, I, I think it was listening to potential investors' advice. Uh, in the first time that I raised money, um, yeah, listening to non-operators' business advice. Uh, if there's anyone whose advice you should listen to, it should be other founders, 
you know, maybe even multiple time founders or maybe even just people that run businesses. But yeah, I definitely avoid, you know, and it, and it, you can think of them as authorities because, you know, they're they're on the funding side of the table. They must have seen lots of startups, um, but they just, yeah, unless you actually live a business and live founding a business, you just aren't going to connect with the actual uh, pros and cons. And so there were a couple of things I did uh, by listening to that advice that I, I kicked myself for. But, you know, as CEO, everything's my fault. Uh, and so I can't can't really blame anyone else. But if I was to do it again, yeah, I'd say uh, don't listen to any VC's uh, advice. Um, yeah, maybe listen to mine to not listen to VC's <laughs> advice. No, I think that's good. And I, you know, I kind of laugh because it's the same thing. A lot of times people feel like, and I think a lot of times erroneously, go to it. You go to a, a patent attorney, and they're going to tell you, or even just an attorney, they'll tell you how to run your business either legally or at. And you know, a lot of the patent attorneys I know, they have. They do a great job of knowing the law and helping, but they have zero business experience, no background. They've never ran their own thing. They've been an attorney. They've worked for a firm their whole life. And so it's, you know, if you're going for them for legal advice, great. They can give you some good. But if you're looking for a business perspective or guidance, to your, to your point, it's much better to go to somebody that's been through that, been successful, built something, and otherwise uh, may able to achieve it, as opposed to someone that has just seen a kind of an outside looking in, which is a totally different experience. So I, I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, yeah. Make sure that you're you're getting uh, understand that just because someone's an authority, it might not apply to everything. They're an authority in one area. Like, what's their zone of yep. authority and expertise? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Second question I always ask now is: if you talk to somebody that's just getting into a startup or a small business, what'd be the one piece of advice you'd give them? Yeah. Uh, <sighs> Uh, in general, be ready to to not listen to a lot of people uh, because you're going to hear a lot of no's and don't do that. Uh, but what the world needs is innovation. Uh, you know, as a society, we we aren't going to get very far unless there's people willing to to not listen to people. Um, if you listen to people, you aren't going to end up. You know, we just wouldn't have any innovation. Uh, if people only did the easy things, we wouldn't have any innovation. Um, so yeah, I'd I'd encourage people to to go for it. You know, um, you can try and fail quickly. You know that'll help. Um, but just just do it. Yeah, um, I've had friends ask me who are considering starting things up and asking like question. You'll get questions like like when's the right time to make this next step or to like to talk to potential investors or and you you just you can only find out by taking the leap so it's you know uh, like so the optional bit is like make sure you have a parachute but just yeah take the leap go for it and that's how you're going to find out you'll you'll only be able to tell once you've once you've made the jump Hey, I think that's a, a great uh, piece of advice, great takeaway. And I think that, you know, you'll get, I, I, it feels like you either get one of two things when you're starting out and talking with people, you know, if you're talking with friends and families, or they tell you it's a terrible idea and never do it, or they'll be too nice and they'll give you support no matter what they think of the idea. You'll get, you know, people that are, are you know, an arm's length away that are kind of the potential customers. They'll probably give you a more honest feedback. And then you'll get people in the industry that have been doing it a certain way for a long period of time. And they're just going to tell you why it's all wrong, just because, um, you know, that 
they're used to doing it a certain way and why would you ever do it any way else? And so I think that, yeah, I, I love the the feedback that you're going to have to be willing and ready to be prepared to get to deal with a lot of no's and, and feedback and things that, you know, that you're, it would otherwise discourage you and you're just going to have to be ready to move forward. So that's a, a great uh, piece of takeaway. Well, now, as we wrap up the episode, if people want to reach out to you, they want to be a customer, they want to be a client, they want to be an employee, they want to be an investor, they want to be your next best friend, any or all of the above, what's the best way to reach out to you, contact you, find out more? Yeah, it's to email me at sean, at S-E-A-N, at solve.finance. So, our, you know, our domain is solve.finance. We solve finance uh, for other companies' users uh, and just email sean at solve.finance. Awesome. Well, I definitely encourage people to reach out, connect, and if nothing else, make a new best friend. So with that, thank you again, Sean, for coming on the podcast. It's been a fun. It's been a pleasure. Now, for all of you listeners that are out there, if you have your own journey to share and you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, we'd love to have you. So just go to inventiveguest.com, apply to be on the show. A couple more things as listeners, make sure to click share, subscribe, and leave us a review so we can help even more startups and small businesses out there along their journey to success. And on that note, if you ever need help with your patents, your trademarks, or anything else with your startup, your small business, feel free to reach out to us and just go to strategymeeting.com, grab some time with us to chat, and we're always here to help. Well, thank you again for coming on the podcast and wish the next leg of your journey even better than the last. Thank you.